On this podcast, we sat down with Air Force Surgeon General Lieutenant General Dorothy Hogg to discuss the current transition of administration, direction, and control of military treatment facilities to the Defense Health Agency. This massive endeavor follows the 2017, 2018, and 2019 National Defense Authorization Act's call for military service branches to relinquish control seamlessly with the Defense Health Agency. These changes will affect a significant portion of the military community, including active duty, dependents, and retirees. I'm Tech Sergeant Brad Sisson, and this is the Air Force Podcast. The Air Force Podcast. How long have you been in the position you're currently in as far as Surgeon General goes? I've been the Air Force Surgeon General since uh, June 5th of last year, so just a little over a year now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we had you in earlier here. Were you in that position then, or were you in a... No, I was the Deputy Surgeon General okay. then, right? So I can't keep a job. I keep, <laughs> I keep moving from job to job, but uh, no, it's been, uh, it's been an honor. I'm pretty excited. Is it a dream, like, for uh, you? Um, yeah, some days it's a dream. No, it, it is a dream. It's, uh, we're at an incredible point in time in our history right now, especially for the military health system. And so being able to shape change is uh, always something I enjoy doing. Um, It can be difficult at times and a little hair pulling at times, but uh, in the end, we always, we always get to the right answer usually. Yeah. So change is coming and you mentioned it. Um, Can you kind of quickly summarize uh, the medical treatment facilities transition to the defense health agency? Um, And also kind of What's the st- uh, what kind of where we stand on the timeline of that? Yeah. So the, the military health system transformation uh, really came about from the release of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017. That's the first time in, uh, in really a long time that there were so many uh, articles uh, referencing changing the military health system. And so what that did was uh, give the authority direction control of the military treatment facilities to the Defense Health Agency, which is a civilian agency, and then gave a readiness to the services. Um, up until that time, the services were doing both, delivering the benefit and trying to do readiness at the same time. Uh, we have, since uh, 2017, we have been collaborating with one another, the ser- all the services in the Defense Health Agency, on what's the best way forward. We've gone through a couple of iterations on an implementation plan. And so right now we are on implementation plan three, which is really looking to stand up the Defense Health Agency's functional capabilities uh, before we actually let go of the, uh, uh, the military treatment facilities. So uh, the plan today... Uh, which could change uh, tomorrow, but for today, uh, the military treatment facilities, all the military treatment facilities will transition over to the Defense Health Agency on 1 October 19, uh, and that's CONUS, ba- uh, stateside bases, yeah. and then the overseas bases won't transition over until 2020. Okay. Um, that gives us the ability to um, sort of right seat, left seat with DHA, so my capability that's currently uh, related to delivering, managing delivering the benefit will go over to the Defense Health Agency on 1 July of this year, and, and we'll just sit with them and show them how we do business um, and uh, help them to stand up their functional capabilities. And what I mean by functional capabilities is standing up their patient safety division, their human resource division, their quality division, those kinds of things, everything that you would think that you would need in order to run a healthcare system. 
Uh, and so we'll right seat, left seat them. Um, and when we are comfortable based on uh, metrics, criteria, conditioned criteria, uh, then we'll let go of the stick and let them fly the plane, if you will. Um, so uh, that's kind of where we're at with the transition today. Okay. So um, I guess you were talking about make sure, you know, the criteria is in place to kind of, you know, let go of the stick. So uh, how long do you think that'll be for uh, the Defense Health Agency to kind of fully take over? Yeah, um, I think that right now that's, you know, yet to be determined, right? Um, so we want to make sure that we set them up for success and that we don't drop any balls along the way. Um, we've been managing uh, military treatment facilities for a long time. Uh, we've, do, we do it fairly well. Uh, I won't say perfect, but fairly well. Um, the Defense Health Agency hasn't done that ever. Uh, so we want to make sure that they uh, that we give them some of the lessons that we've learned over the years, so they don't have to relearn them, and that they can get their feet underneath them before before we let them go. So right now, um, I would say to be determined. Okay. So uh, I understand another way that the Air Force military treatment facilities are changing is through the medical reform model. Uh, can you explain how that medical reform model is different from today's model, uh, along with kind of the when and why uh, the model is being implemented? Yeah, so when the, when the National Defense Authorization Act was released in 2017, and it clearly identified leaders uh, for both missions, peacetime and health uh, and um, readiness, that gave the services the opportunity to really focus in on readiness. And what do, would we need to do to really pay attention to that? Because up until then, uh, we were trying to juggle both missions. And so depending on... Uh, the priority of the day, it might have been healthcare at one point in time, and then readiness maybe took a back seat, and then another day it might have been um, readiness and healthcare took a back seat. And so uh, this reform is not related directly to the military trans health transformation, uh, but it's maybe as a result of that, um, so that we can really get after readiness as a service, medical readiness as a service. And so this transformation allows us to do that, where we are um, taking our military treatment facilities and focusing a squadron on delivering the benefit and focusing a squadron on delivering medical readiness to our airmen. And so all of our active duty members will be enrolled to that uh, operational medical readiness squadron, and all of our beneficiaries will be enrolled to the healthcare uh, operations squadron. And that just allows us to really focus in on our active duty members and making sure that they're mission capable, ready to do the mission, whatever mission it is, uh, all the time. And it also allows us to focus in on delivering that benefit uh, because there are a lot of administrative uh, medical requirements when you're active duty that our beneficiaries don't need to pay attention to. But prior to this, they were all mingled into one squadron. And so the provider might have been, you know, distracted on trying to do the medical readiness piece of it at the expense of getting an appointment for a beneficiary. So now we've um, separated that so that they can truly focus on both missions. So ma'am, uh, can you explain a little bit about the functions of the two medical squadrons uh, within this kind of reform model that's happening? Yeah, so both of these will be in the military treatment facility together, right? Okay. And so the healthcare uh, operations squadron We'll really focus on delivering uh, the functions to our beneficiaries, like 
um, you know, lab, rad, pharmacy, laboratory, radiology, pharmacy, um, and then primary care. And then the operational medical readiness squadron will focus on focus in on some of those same things: um, primary care, um, military readiness, uh, preventative health assessments, all of those specific requirements that uh, airmen need to do, active duty airmen need to do to stay ready for the mission. Some people have this concept that they're two distinct and separate squadrons and that they won't interact with one another. And that's farther from the truth. These squadrons are connected and are synergistic and collaborative uh, to everything that we will do in that military treatment facility. So, for example, laboratory, radiology, and pharmacy will be in the health care operations squadron. But our active duty members are still going to need those functions. So they'll go over into there. There might be some specialty care uh, delivering the benefit in the healthcare operations squadron. Our active duty members will still need to go over there to get that specialty care. There might be care in an operational medical readiness squadron that maybe a beneficiary might need. And so we'll make arrangements to to. to provide that care at the same time. So these are not two separate and distinct squadrons. They are collaborative and synergistic to the whole operations of the military treatment facility. Um, and so uh, specifically, I've heard mentioned women's health. Uh, some people you know, wonder, uh, how is women's health going to be delivered in this new model? Um, because they don't specifically see it over in the Operational Medical Readiness Squadron. They see primary care, uh, but they don't see women's health. Uh, so women's health is uh, still a function that is needed in the military treatment facilities and in our military at large. I think last I saw, 26% of our force is female. Um, and so um, we still need that capability. Uh, to not only to go to war for our active duty folks, but also we have two other missions that we do other than just go to war. We do humanitarian missions and we do disaster response. And those two missions are heavy in women's health and pediatrics. Um, and so we will keep that capability within the Air Force Medical Service. It might be smaller than what it is today, uh, but we'll keep that capability in the service. Okay. So... Uh are these changes tied to the bigger military health system reform initiatives? Yeah, they, they, they are tied, but they're not, one is not driving the other. Um, so they're related uh, in the sense that it will help us to really focus on what my primary mission now is, readiness. Um, and DHA can focus in their primary mission on delivering the benefit. Um, so one is not driving the other, but they're, they are related. Okay. So what are the expected personnel reductions, and uh, what were the factors in that decision? So, the, the, again, this is another piece. These are all lines of efforts that are interrelated but not caused by one or the other, right? So the military health transformation didn't cause reductions. The military health transformation didn't cause me to reform the Air Force Medical Service, but they're related, right? Um, and so for our military medical reductions, what that was is uh, I am over military end strength and my requirement to support the COCOMs to do our operational mission. Uh, I look at that every year. We, uh, we do an analysis that gives me what I call my critical operational readiness requirement. And today, 
I, I know what that number is. And so I am over in end strength to do that mission. Uh, so that's where some of these reductions came from. Uh, now, I would say that the reductions uh, do not um, cause me to degrade my delivery of the medical readiness mission, but it does have an impact on delivery of the benefit because those reductions, my, uh, the, the number of medics that I was over in end strength was my capability to transition from military to civilian medics, uh, which we had been prohibited from doing until NDAA 17 came, 2017 came out. Um, and so that's uh, where that came from. Now, how we got to that, so part of that was our analysis of what I did need to have in uniform. Uh, and um, the other thing is, is we looked at uh, where we could take those reductions based on, again, uh, 2017, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017. There's a section in there, 703, that talks about uh, military treatment facility capabilities, uh, plussing up or, or um, pushing more to the network. And so we based some of our analysis on that. This reduction will occur over um, uh, an attrition of three years. So no forced reductions at this point in time. <clears throat> um, and so at the end of the three years, I'll see where we're at and then make, uh, have some conversations with A1 to, to decide, can I push that out a little bit longer, depending on how many I have yet to take. Uh, also, I would note that in the current NDAA uh, draft language, there is some language that might prohibit us in taking those reductions until an analysis is done on what the impacts are to care and the delivery of that care. So I, I expect if that comes out in, in conference report, once they get through all of uh, the, the committees, that we might end up slowing down the reductions or maybe even not taking the full 4,684. Don't know at this point in time. So um, I'm hearing that personnel reductions will force families to, and retirees to receive care downtown. Is that true? So the reductions, again, um, will change uh, the way we deliver the benefit. Uh, so we have been used to delivering the bene benefit through uh, a lot of military medics. Um, in these reductions, that is going to take those military medics out, and we are going to have to look to replace those with civilians um, or to um, uh, look to our TRICARE partners to deliver that benefit. So I will say that uh, the quality and the safety and the access to care will not change. The place that you get that care might change. Uh, so you might get some of that care in the military treatment facility uh, because there's capacity and capability there, or you might not, and you might get that care that you need in the TRICARE network uh, because that's where um, it, it is for you to get that. And we do that today. Not quite as much as I think we might do in the future, but all of our military treatment facilities do not have all of the capability needed to take care of all of our beneficiaries all the time. So you get some care in the MTF and you get some care in the network. So it will be similar. It's just the balance might change. Okay. Um, so what, what can we expect for the future? What you can expect from the future is that uh, the military health st system is still focused on taking care of our beneficiaries, both active duty and non-active duty, and that the quality of care and the safety of care and the access to care will stay the same. Who provides that might change. 
you might see more civilians providing care in a military treatment facility versus uniformed medics, or you might end up getting more of your care down in the network if it's available in the network. Uh, but rest assured that uh, the focus of our military health system is still on ensuring that we are providing the best care, the right care at the right time for our beneficiaries, uh, both active duty and beneficiary and, and um, non-active duty. Tracking. So these are some pretty significant changes that are happening. So what would you say to families that are maybe uh, that want to keep their provider with all these changes that are happening? Yes. Uh, so change is, I think, a part of our fabric, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're PCSing, you know, every uh, four to five years, sometimes sooner, sometimes later. Uh, but not only do our providers PCS, but so do our families. And so, you know, we're getting new pro- uh, primary care providers all the time. Uh, what I can tell you is that uh, if you want a primary care provider to take care of your um, your significant other and your kids, they could all have the same provider. The active duty member is going to have a provider in the operational medical readiness side of the house because that provider is going to be uh, going to know all the requirements that are needed to keep that person mission ready. Um, and your primary care provider could be either in the military treatment facility or in the local uh, TRICARE network. Uh, yeah, I see maybe more of that as an option in the future. If you have a, a TRICARE network provider, I would venture to say that that provider is not going to change the whole time you're at that base. But when you PCS, you'll get a new provider, right? Um, so we're trying to minimize those changes because I know that's difficult for families, and especially for families and uh, who have uh, built a rapport with uh, those uh, primary care providers, I will say that there will always be an option that if we recommend a change and you desire not to have a change, you let, you let us know, and, and we'll make that those adjustments. Well, I appreciate your time, ma'am. Um, thank you for you know taking the time out and actually coming here and explaining all this because I'm as a you know, active duty member with a family like all this. It, it seems like uh, you know a lot on especially your guys's end, but you know, on our end, I, I don't know, you know, what to expect. And this helps out. And I, I thank you for that. I appreciate you coming down and explaining that. Thank, thank you. My pleasure. The Air Force Podcast.